0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 106 for the 2nd-3rd of April 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether or not planets formed through a fission process from the Sun. Now, I'm going to start this episode in a way that I haven't done before, and that's with some additions and corrections from last time to help transition us into this topic. Remember that the last episode was that Earth's moon, and indeed all planetary moons, though I didn't actually get into other ones, is formed through a fission process, budding off of an initially molten planet. First up is a clarification from Derek on the blog, who pointed out that I said, the moon orbits 5.1 degrees from Earth's equator. It's actually 5.1 degrees from the ecliptic, meaning that it's inclined relative to Earth's equator by 23.5 plus or minus 5.1, or about 18.4 to 28.6 degrees. In other words, the Moon's orbit is inclined 5.1 degrees relative to Earth's path around the Sun. But since Earth's equator, or poles, or whatever reference point is tilted, 23.5 degrees, or 23.4, something like that, relative to that path around the Sun, then the moon's orbit relative to Earth's equator is tilted by the addition or subtraction of that number. Expat, also on the blog, pointed out that on page 16 of Mike Barra's book, Ancient Aliens on the Moon, he wrote, quote, In Van Flandern's model, the moon didn't break away from the primordial Earth after it cooled and solidified. It spun off out of the early molten Earth. This would also explain why the moon is made up primarily of material from the Earth's lighter mantle, rather than the heavier, iron-rich core. The only observation that isn't accounted for is the fact that the moon's orbital plane is inclined by 5.14 degrees to the Earth's. However, there could be numerous explanations for this, like later impacts, which forced the moon to a different position, and so this is not a showstopper for the theory. End quote. Vera makes the mistake that orbital plane is not the equator. So, you would have to do one of two things for Mike to be correct. Either Earth orbited initially with a 5.14 degree inclination, such that the moon butted off at the equator, and then Earth was somehow tilted, or the moon's orbit was moved a huge amount to get it to orbit 18.4 to 28.6 degrees from Earth's equator. Or a combination of both. The problem is that there's no mechanism. Mike gives a hand-wavy, like, later impacts, which force the moon into a different position. But if he wants to argue that, he needs to give an example of when that's happened unequivocally in the past, or show his math. I would actually argue that other solar system moons show that you can't move a moon that much in its orbit due to the huge amount of energy involved. For example, Jupiter's moons are certainly hit by more stuff than ours because Jupiter acts as a gravitational focus, bringing stuff in. And yet the four main moons of Jupiter, all of which except one are smaller than our moon, orbit at 0.04 degrees, 0.47 degrees, 0.21 degrees, and 0.51 degrees relative to Earth's equator. Or, not Earth, Jupiter's equator. Titan, the largest moon of Saturn and smaller than Earth's moon, orbits at 0.33 degrees relative to Saturn's equator, not 18.4 to 28.6 degrees. Without even doing the math, I think that these argue strongly against impact being enough to push a moon that far away from the planet's equator, and the moon surviving that process also in the process. As a final correction to last episode, and a transition to this one, Expat also pointed out that it was in his Ancient Aliens on the Moon, not the choice, book, that Mike Bear advocated for the fission model for lunar formation. It's in the choice that he advocated for planetary formation via fission, which is the claim for this episode, that planets are birthed by spinning off of their parent star. In feedback to this podcast, many people have noted that I appear to be fairly objective, I don't get into ad hominem attacks, and I approach the raw facts with a wry sense of humor. It's pretty difficult to do that in this episode, because the topic is, well, it's just kind of ludicrous, and supported by the flimsiest of cherry-picked evidence, while still requiring a ridiculous amount of special pleading and mystical forces the likes of which have yet to be demonstrated. Take, for instance, the discussion proposed in Tom Van Flanderen's book, and on his website, for which he probably was the biggest modern proponent of the fission idea. The model starts with the basic premise that the solar system started out with, just the Sun. It spun really, really fast, and every so often it would just kind of spit off planets in pairs. Pairs being an operative point of the model, you have to have planets in pairs. These planets would migrate outwards to where we see them today. These planets would sometimes spin fast enough that they, too, would sprout their own pairs of moons, as discussed in the last episode. Earth's moon lacking a counterpart, apparently not being a detriment to this idea, and Mercury being a moon of Venus, and Venus lacking a counterpart moon to Mercury, also apparently not being an issue to this idea. The planet's original years around the sun were in multiples of two, following a somewhat modified Titus-Bode law, something that I'll be discussing in future episodes, hopefully in an interview with Hal Levison. Each pair of planets was not at the same distance, but rather they were spaced in their multiples of two with each successive pair continuing outwards. Since what I just said makes absolutely no sense even to me who wrote it and then just spoke it, let me give you an example by way of re-explaining where all of the units in this explanation are in units of Earth Distance from the Sun, Earth Mass, and Earth Years. Under his model, Venus would be the closest planet to the Sun, and it had an orbital distance of 0.5. The current is 0.7, and an original year of 0.35. It also had an original mass of 0.8. The current mass of Venus is 0.82. Earth was next with an original distance of 0.8. Current is 1, by definition. Original period of 0.7, which is twice of 0.35, and an original mass of 1. Again, same as present by definition. Next out were planets V and planet K, with original years of 1.4 and 2.8, original masses of 8 and 10, and they don't exist anymore. Next out were planets A and B, with original years of 5.6 and 11, and original masses of 120 and 150. They also don't exist anymore. Remember, Van Flanderen is an advocate of the idea that planets randomly explode. Next out are Jupiter and Saturn. As a pair, Jupiter originally having a year of 22 and Saturn of 45. This corresponds with original distances of 7.9 and 13, although the current distances are less than that, 5.2 and 9.5. Van Flanderen claims that their original masses were 65 and 80, Earth masses, although they are now 318 and 95. Somehow. Uranus and Neptune are next, originally 20 and 32 AU away, now 19.2 and 30, with original years of 90 and 180. Their original masses haven't changed much from 14 to 14.6 now, and 17 to 17.3. Next out are planets T and X, with original distances of 50 and 80, original years of 360 and 720, and original masses of 2 and 3. He claimed that Mercury was a moon of Venus, Mars was a moon of planet V, the dwarf planet Ceres was a moon of planet K, and Pluto and Charon were moons of Neptune, although we actually do think that Pluto might have been a moon of Neptune. As I said, it is hard to maintain objectivity in this discussion. It's like he literally just made this stuff up, pulling it from somewhere. I've read through the meta-research website, I've read through the chapter in his book that's available online via Google Books, although there are a few pages here and there that are missing, and here's what I can gather are his problems with the traditional accretion model, the collapse from a nebula. First, quote, It is often spoken of intuitively obvious that moons and planets, while forming, would eventually sweep up all the original material in or near their orbit. Actually, this is not possible in the simplest intuitive sense. Objects in the same orbit as a larger mass are forced to, quote, librate back and forth, always avoiding collision with the larger mass. The most outstanding example of this libration phenomenon is the Trojan asteroids in Jupiter's orbit. And it is obvious that the various planetary rings in the solar system are not tending to accrete into larger bodies. End quote. Second issue is quote ninety eight percent of the angular momentum or energy in the solar system is in the planets, not the sun. Yet these planets account for only a bit over one one thousandth the mass of the sun. That at first seems like a very unnatural state of affairs. End quote. Third, Quote, "It is now recognized that accretion from a solar nebula would not necessarily cause the planets to spin in the same direction as they orbit." Quote. If you want to do a name that logical fallacy, first we have a false analogy, then we have a well, false dichotomy, and now third, we have a cherry-picking example. The next page of his book is missing from the Google version of the book, but it's clear that his model of a fission origin would solve these three problems that he identifies, which, so far as I can tell, is his evidence, which uncomfortably sets up a bit of a false dichotomy, kind of like creationism, although I don't think he's trying to actually use the false dichotomy as evidence, as in, I haven't seen him write that because the nebular accretion model doesn't work in his mind— it must be the fission model. That would be using the false dichotomy as an argument. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's just setting up a false dichotomy instead. So at least from what is freely available, Van Flandern proposed three problems to the nebular accretion model of planetary origins that he said was solved by his fission model. Perhaps it was simply when he wrote about this stuff, but these are really non-issues and stem from an argument from personal incredulity. The first issue is that he doesn't think stuff should, quote, stick, unquote, together. He's wrong. In a disk of planetary material, relative velocities between particles tend to be ridiculously small. And self-gravity plays a large role. His analogies to Jupiter's Trojan asteroids and Saturn's and other rings are false. Trojans are 60 degrees ahead and behind of a planet's orbit, and that's because they're stable points due to the sun's and planet's combined gravity. But you need a planet there to start with before these points can form, these points of stability. And you need a stable star that's not gaining or losing mass, otherwise these points are going to move. When you have a solar system that's forming, that's kind of what's going on. Stuff is moving. As for rings, the analogy is also completely broken, and I can approach this as my own argument from authority because I study this. A minimum mass solar nebula, the absolute minimum amount of material needed to form the planets under the nebular model, is around 1 one-hundredth of a solar mass, and the disk would be spread out over tens of astronomical units, where an astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is very roughly a few thousand times the diameter of the Sun. In contrast, the mass of Saturn's rings is about 0.0000001, or 1 10 millionth the mass of Saturn. Not 1 100th, one but 1 10 millionth the mass of Saturn. And it's only spread out over about 0.2 Saturnian diameters. If you don't like numbers, these boil down to two extremes. The nebular model would be spread out over a huge distance and be a reasonable fraction of the sun's mass. Saturn's rings, the densest planetary rings that we know of today, are hundreds of thousands of times less massive than the solar nebula would have been relative to what they orbit, but they are thousands of times closer to what they are orbiting. The physics, which describes what can accrete and stick together, are completely different between those two systems, and you would expect that Saturn's system, Because it's so much closer to the parent body, wouldn't be able to accrete stuff together because it would be torn apart by Saturn's tides. And yet, in the outer regions of Saturn's outer rings, we do get small bodies accreting together into stable features. We see these not only in simulations like what I'm doing, but we also actually have seen them. Cassini has taken pictures of these structures in the outer parts of the rings that are tens of kilometers across, and it's re-imaged them across different orbits, showing that they're at least stable on the order of several years. This is completely contrary to what Van Flandern states as his first problem. From what I can tell, the angular momentum problem, Van Flandern's second issue, is still something of a research question today. Various solutions have been proposed, and most of them deal with the Sun dynamically transferring angular momentum to the solar nebula, or it radiating that energy away through the solar wind, kind of like a a spinning ice skater slowing down by throwing bits of lead weights she's been carrying. In other words, while this is still an unsolved problem from what I can tell, there are reasonable solutions to it that do not in any way doom the model and require a solar fission formation. The third problem is not a problem as far as I can tell. His reference to noted planetary scientist J.J. Lissauer is a bit of a quote mine from outdated research from 1992. Lissauer stated that his models, and these again are from 1992, not 2014, that a growing planetesimal, so a growing small planet, would spin only about once a week, not once a day. So from that work, from 1992, required a different explanation or other parameters that they didn't know about at the time to solve the problem. Which we now have. It's one of those cases of this is how science works, where you start out with a simple model and then you add more and more real physics on top of it. In this case, when you add more and more physics, such as the influence of gas instead of just dust, you no longer have this kind of problem. To Van Flandern's slight defense, he was writing this in 1993 in his book, and 1997 on his website. With his problems not actually being problems to the nebular model, what about the problems with his own model? Well, there are, uh, well, to put it bluntly, many. One that he tries to address is inclination. While the planets orbit mostly in the same plane, if they were flung out from the equator of a rapidly rotating star, one would expect them to orbit exactly at that star's equator. None of the planets do this, and none of the pairs that he identifies, such as Earth-Venus, Jupiter-Saturn, or Uranus-Neptune, orbit in the same plane as the other alleged pair member. Mercury also doesn't orbit around the plane of Venus's equator, and... Well, who knows if Mars orbits at the plane of wherever planet K or V or whatever's equator was. Just as I argued at the beginning of this episode that it would require an inordinate amount of mystery energy to alter the orbits that much of just Earth or the moon, the same goes for planets. Except even more so. Van Flandern wrote, quote, the principal reasons why this idea was rejected earlier are that the sun's present spin is well below an overspin condition and its equator is tilted about 7 degrees to the mean plane of the planet mean being average but both of these conditions can easily arise from subsequent evolution for example by magnetic braking especially if as it appears the sun's interior presently spins much faster than its surface and the tilt of the spun's orbital axis will be altered during its contraction, both by interactions between its faster-spinning core and its slower-spinning mantle, and by the same sort of tilt-changing interaction with the planets we proposed for the Earth-Moon system following the Moon's vision from the Earth." Quote. I think that Van Flanderen underestimated the amount of energy required to do this, and he admits to not doing any calculations to back it up. A second major problem with this model is the composition of objects. We know from oxygen isotope data, discussed in episode 89 and follow up in, I think, episode 90, that Earth, Mars, and asteroids all formed in different parts of the solar system, not at the Sun. And yet, Mars is supposed to be a moon of planet V, and the asteroid belt is supposed to be from the exploded remnants of planet V and planet... Okay, so those should at least look the same, Mars should look like the asteroids. It doesn't. We also know that Earth's elemental abundance is somewhat different from Mars, and we've studied the atmospheres of the gas giants and, though they superficially appear to be in pairs, they are different. For example, Saturn's molecular hydrogen content is larger than Jupiter's, and its helium content is only one-third of Jupiter's. Meanwhile, the helium content of Neptune is 25% more than Uranus. Okay, so yeah, sure, if you throw away Mercury, Mars, and Pluto, superficially Venus and Earth kind of look like pairs, Jupiter and Saturn kind of look like pairs, Uranus and Neptune, they kind of look like pairs, if you throw away those three other planets, assuming in this context Pluto's a planet, and if you ignore some major differences between the pairs. Though I guess it could be argued that Jupiter and Saturn are more like each other than any other planet, Venus and Earth are also more like each other than any other planet, and Uranus and Neptune are also more like each other than any other planet. So while I personally think that this is crappy evidence and it is better explained by the nebular model, it's not necessarily wrong evidence on Van Flandern's part. But for his model to work, and I've kind of saved the obvious for last, Van Flandern's model requires not only for the planets that we see today to have moved, which actually isn't that big of an issue, again, hopefully I'll be able to get Hal Levison on, we'll talk about that, but also for those planets to lose or gain a huge amount of mass, for some of the planets to have been moons of other planets but now be in nice stable orbits around the sun, and for at least four planets to have, well, exploded. In fact, Van Flandern states on his website, quote, Evolution of the planets would typically proceed via tides and drag toward the maximum stability titus bode law configuration, wherein each planet has a circular, coplanar orbit with double the orbital period of the next planet in. Once that was achieved, further orbital evolution would cease, end quote. Except none of the planets orbit in perfect circles, none of them are coplanar, and none of them have a year double to the next planet in. And yet, somehow, Jupiter also gained 250 Earth masses of material after it formed, Saturn gained an entire Uranus worth of material, and, well, Van Flandern's model requires that the outer member of each pair was heavier, so Jupiter should be swapped with Saturn. And, at least, again, four planets exploded. See Episodes 29 and 30 for more on that. While I don't think it's poor form to argue against a deceased man's ideas, since they are his ideas, not him himself, so he doesn't necessarily need to be here to defend himself, the evidence should speak for itself, and Van Flandern's fission model for planetary formation does have a still-living defender, embodied in Mike Barra. In some of his writings and his speakings, Mike has defended the fission model and claimed that new discoveries of exoplanets support the model. For example, in September of 2008, an exoplanet around the very young star, 1RXS J160929.1-210524, something like that, was directly imaged, estimated to be anywhere from 7 to 16 Jupiter masses, and it was observed to be 330 AU from its parent star. Its discovery did pose problems for the standard nebular collapse model because the basic model requires much, much more time for an object so far out to form. In fact, that's one reason why we don't think Jupiter, not Jupiter, but Uranus and Neptune formed where they are today. We think they migrated out because the standard model says they shouldn't have been able to form by the time the nebula would have dissipated, but that's another episode. Anyway, as I said, its discovery did pose problems for the standard model because the basic model requires much more time for the object so far out to form. An obvious solution is that it did not form there, just as I said with Uranus Uranus Neptune, fancy that, but that it was flung out from interactions with another, much larger planet, much closer in. Or there are theoretical modifications to the nebular collapse model like disk instability that I'm just gonna name and not get into, that could solve the time problem Or, you could get a much more massive protoplanetary disk. That could also solve the time problem. Or, we could just throw everything else out and say that it's fission. Which is what Mike does, completely ignoring that Van Flandern's fission model requires a second planet. But none was observed, and six years later we still haven't seen any twin, and it certainly doesn't follow any multiple-of-two spacing in its year around the star. Because you need a second planet to get that multiple of two thing. And Mike's explanation of how it got so far away is, quote, It has been ejected from its parent star a relatively short time ago because it seems obvious that we are seeing in near real time the birth of a new planet in accordance with the fission model, end quote. Fast forward to 2013, when in March he wrote on Facebook, quote, this finding reinforces the solar fission theory of planetary formation I advocate in my second book, The Choice, End quote. He linked to an article on Yahoo News that reported the observations of a still-forming Jupiter-sized planet around star HD 100546. Unfortunately, the article itself that he linked to stated, quote, According to our current theory, giant planets grow by capturing some of the gas and dust that remains after the formation of a star. The astronomers have spotted several features in the new image of the disk around HD 100546 that support this protoplanet hypothesis. Structures in the dusty circumstellar disk, which could be caused by interactions between the planet and the disk, were revealed close to the detected protoplanet. End quote. So rather than supporting fission, the observations themselves support the nebular collapse model, unlike what Mike said. As a final example, Mike Barr wrote a blog post in August of 2013, claiming that the, quote, newly discovered world, end quote, even though it had been discovered two years earlier, GJ504B, quote, "...have driven a further nail in the coffin of NASA's shopworn accretion model of planetary formation and give a substantial boost to late Tom Van Flanderen's solar fission theory of planetary formation." End quote. Mike this time explained away the problem of it being a lone planet, because remember, Van Flanderen requires pairs of planets, so he explained this away by arguing that we simply can't see the companion planet yet but because it poses problems for the standard model, which is not NASA's model, by the way, as Mike State's, he says, quote, The fact that we can't yet see GJ504C, where he's creating this extra planet C, does nothing to change the fact that this new observation fits the solar fission theory perfectly and directly contradicts the increasingly discredited accretion model, end quote. Except it doesn't. Mike's argument is exactly the same as a young Earth creationist saying that radiocarbon dating of a live seal to hundreds of years old means that the age of the Earth is only 6,000. The format of his argument is this. First, an observation of an exoplanet is not easily explained by the simple nebular collapse model, especially as Mike pretends to understand it. Second, therefore, that model is, quote, directly contradicted. Third, it does not directly contradict the fission model because I've ignored or explained away key parts of what the fission model requires. So therefore, fourth, this observation fits the fission model perfectly. Replace some terms and you have a creationist argument that most of us are probably more familiar with. And in this case, as with many others, the more data points that we have, The more ideas that we include into the primary model, the more we are likely to come up with a more unified model for planetary formation. But between the nebula collapse model and the fission from a star, I would consider it easy money to place my bet on nebular collapse, in some form, as being the ultimate model shown to work. For feedback this episode, we're going to talk about episode 85 on Blood Moons. I got some feedback from Rabbi Benjamin Sendler, who was binging on some of my episodes, and he had a few corrections. Well, one correction and some other stuff. The minor correction is one that I thought I mentioned before, but will again just in case, and that's that the Jewish holiday of, and sorry for pronunciation, Tisha B'Av is a fast day, not a feast day. One letter can make a lot of difference. What I said is other stuff, is that he disagreed with what I had classified as main Jewish holidays. In the episode, I said that I used hebcal, H-E-B-C-A-L, .com, which listed 10 major Jewish holidays. And you can go back to the episode and hear my rotten pronunciations if you really want to. I'm not going to repeat them here. He said that, in actuality, there are only three major Jewish holidays, which are called The Regalim, uh, sorry for the pronunciation again, and those are Pesach, a.k.a. Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. While I agree with him that something like, say, Hanukkah is only considered major because it happens around Christmas, he even classified Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as not really holidays, but events that culminate in a later holiday. What I have clearly stated is that I am not by any means a Jewish or Torah or Talmudic scholar. But I did do a bit more digging, and for whatever it's worth, practically every website I found, most of them being Jewish websites, listed those roughly 10 days or events as the major Jewish holidays, so that's what I went with. The rabbi's point was that I shouldn't base my refutation by stressing the number of Jewish holidays. He did point out that none of what he said was, quote, really relevant to debunking an artificial connection between a rather pedestrian coincidence and the second coming, end quote. But, that was only part of my point in my debunking basis. You start with the fact that Jewish holidays happen according to the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, such that, by definition, your holidays have a reasonably high chance of happening during an eclipse when compared with calendars and holidays based on solar or some other calendar system. Add to that that there are a large number of holidays, at least according to several online sources, if not according to more traditional interpretations. Add to that how eclipse cycles happen both within a year, as in two weeks apart and then six months apart, how they repeat every 18 to 19 years, and you start to see that this is not going to be a ridiculously rare thing. And add to that that the last time this happened, nothing happened. The big important event that is supposedly because of these blood moons actually happened a year after the Tetrad happened. So, what we're left with is a not-rare-in-the-big-scheme-of-things occurrence that can easily be retrodicted to mean something important because important stuff happens all the time. This point still works with only saying that there are three major Jewish holidays, especially since two of those three are during full moons, six months apart. Also in feedback is Captain Catherine Janeway of the USS Starship Voyager. Howard was the first to point me to this. Apparently a major geocentrism think tank and i use the word think very loosely here has decided to put out a promo for a video or a movie that they're making called The Principle this is the guy by the way who runs the website galileo was wrong so i had talked about this in the geocentrism episode but again more to the point right now in the at least preview of the principal, Kate Mulgrew, who is the actress who played Captain Catherine Janeway on Star Trek Voyager. Uh, I'm not going to give my opinion of that particular series, but anyway, she was the narrator. So this made a big hubbub on the intertubes tubes for a few days. Basically, you know, how can a Star Trek actress, or an actress who portrayed someone on Star Trek, especially someone who was not only a Starfleet captain, but a scientist, How could she possibly be a shill for geocentrism? Also in this preview, though, were apparently interviews with very prominent theoretical physicists Lawrence Krauss and Michio Kaku. Within a day, I think, maybe two days, Lawrence Krauss took to the web and said, no way in, you know, where did he actually do an interview for this movie that he was either tricked into doing something, or the guy was actually pulling parts and creatively editing them together from other interviews that he's given to make it look like he supports the idea. So far, I haven't seen anything from Kaku, but I would expect something similar, With I would hope, that something similar happened to him. As for Kate Mulgrew, she also took to Facebook... And she said that no, she does not believe in geocentrism. She was effectively a voice for hire. I mean, she is an actress. And she was handed a script and she read it, but that she doesn't really support this idea. Me personally, if I were handed a script that in any way looked like it was advocating geocentrism, I'd say, take your money, I'm not doing this. But I'm not Kate Mulgrew. Anyway... Lawrence Krauss has also said that he does not plan to sue over this because they're using his likeness, apparently, I would assume, without a model release, and that he would hope that this just dies a quiet death. Again, Michio Kaku has been silent on the issue. Maybe he'll sue. We'll see. Uh, Something else that a lot of people or a lot of sources have been pointing out is that the person in charge of this also has a history of anti-Semitic statements and uh, viewpoints, For me, I think that that's sort of beside the point in this. Yes, it lends a little bit of context to the kind of person that you're dealing with, but I think that that's beside the point in terms of geocentrism and using actors to advance your idea and not really telling them what it's all about. So that's all I really have to say on this particular issue. In terms of announcements, uh, by the way, again, there's no puzzlers this episode, but in terms of announcements, I will probably, possibly be doing a couple interviews in the very near future, as in before the next episode comes out. Um, I emailed Carl Mamer, the conspiracy skeptic, and said, hey, this whole Blood Moon thing is really taking off in the mainstream press. I suggest that you have me on as your astronomer royale and let me do my duty. And so in two days, we will probably be doing an interview. And again, that will probably, hopefully, assuming Carl can get it out soon enough, come out, I would guess, a few hours before the lunar eclipse. Again, the lunar eclipse is visible from pretty much all of the Americas, a little bit of the eastern part of Pacifica, whatever you want to call it, Oceania, Pacifica, that area. Uh, Again, just search the internet, you will find a gajillion maps of where you will be able to see this lunar eclipse, and there will be another one in October around the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. In addition, I was just contacted by Jimmy Church of the Fade to Black radio show, which is on Art Bell's Dark Matter radio network, and he would like to interview me this coming Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, that would be April 16th, 17th or 18th. It would be a three-hour live radio program, uh, 7 to 10 Pacific time. And uh, assuming I accept, I will post details to Facebook and Twitter, and I will post a YouTube link after it's done because uh, Jimmy tends to post these to YouTube pretty much within a day of them actually airing. So uh, that should be up within the next week or so. So look forward to that. That should be uh, an an interesting experience, but one that I look forward to. So with that in mind, and this episode running a little bit long, hopefully to make up a little bit for the shortness of the previous episode, uh, well, I guess we'll go straight to the wrap-up. Well, I guess that wraps up this topic for the one hundred sixth sixth can say that with one syllable? Uh, edition of the Exposing Pseudo Astronomy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, yada yada yada. You can find information at the website, podcast at If you have feedback, uh, you know, what the heck. Just use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at You can also leave a comment well pretty much anywhere that i post or tweet me at pseudo astro i do read every message and i appreciate the feedback and if you have suggestions for topics please please do feel free to make them i do take them under consideration and have a lot of listener suggestions in the queue please also write a review and rate this podcast on itunes or your podcast website portal forum whatever of choice um if you liked it You can also tell friends and family as well as random people that you'll never meet. Um, I troll a lot of forums, start a post or respond to a miscellaneous post and say, hey, y'all should check out this podcast.